I'm Lisa Stone. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Parenting Aces. Welcome to the Parenting Aces podcast. So glad you decided to join us for the second episode of 2018. Before we jump into this week's conversation, I wanted to just put it out there that I noticed in previous years that our podcast guests were very male heavy. And so for 2018, I have resolved to include more women on the show. And I think that's important for a couple reasons. First of all, many of of you have daughters who are junior and college players, and I think it's great to get the female perspective on many of the issues that our daughters face out there, including different uh, approaches to coaching, uh, nutrition issues, developmental issues, emotional issues. And so over the next several episodes, you're going to hear from some of the top women in our sport in in the coaching arena, but also in other aspects of tennis and of sport in general. And secondly, I think there are some amazing female coaches out there who maybe aren't getting the attention they deserve. And I'm hoping that by bringing some of them on the Parenting Aces podcast, maybe we can open the door to more conversations with these phenomenal women and, you know, get opportunities to see them in more public ways out there in the tennis world and in the sporting world. So I hope you enjoy these guests as they come on the show. This week we have Charlotte Alabaster who is coming at us from Canada and I guess we have a little Canadian theme going uh, since last week's guest is based in Canada as well. But Charlotte is going to speak with us about healthy eating about nutrition needs of growing athletes, and also about eating disorders and the warning signs that we need to be on the lookout for. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the Parenting Aces podcast. Charlotte Alabaster, thank you so much for joining us on the Parenting Aces podcast. I'm thrilled to have you coming all the way from Calgary, Canada. Thank you, Lisa. It's a joy to be here today. Well, I am just so anxious to jump into the meat of our discussion, but before I do that, I wanted to give you an opportunity, since you are a first-time guest on Parenting Aces, to talk a little bit about your background and how you got involved in our great sport. Well, tennis is um, a fantastic sport, and it's been a lifelong love affair, as you can probably here from my accent, I've been, I'm originally from the UK, but I've lived for 20 years here in Canada. But my, um, I fell in love with the game as a little girl in the UK when Maria Bueno and uh, Christine Truman were at the height of the game. Uh, I grew up in a pretty rural area and my opportunities to to play and be coached were pretty limited, but but I made the most of every opportunity I had. And at school, we were fortunate to have tennis as part of the curriculum. We did have outside coaches who would come in um, and give us some lessons. And so we used to play every lunch hour and as much as we could as um 
we did in in our school. It, it was an all girls school, and so you know it was it was girls tennis that I played, and I loved it, and I continue to love it. And um, my journey um, has led me to the most wonderful man in my life. His name is Umberto Ortega. He is a tennis coach, and we both adore the game of tennis and each other as it happens. How lovely. How lovely. How lovely. So, so I, I'm gonna I'm gonna apologize to my listeners right now because we've got a bit of an echo on the line and a, a bit of a crackle, but um such is you know, such is the luck when when we have international guests on the show. So um please bear with us everyone. Charlotte, so so you got involved in the medical field and are now in, I think, family practice, right? I am, yes. And, uh, and so can you talk a little bit about what, how your work has evolved to incorporate young athletes? You know, it's very, very interesting how people find their way to my clinic. And I do have a number of elite athletes in different sports who are, who are teen or preteen who are part of my, you know, are under my care. And so I'm exposed to quite a lot of young people who, um, who need help with nutrition, ironically enough. And the parents will sometimes be tearing their hair out because they know, and, and the coaches too, all credit to the coaches, they know too what a healthy diet is. And they come to me and it's, well, can't you just tell her or can't you just tell him, you know, what it is they should be eating? Well, yes, I can. But at the end of the day, if people, if, if kids then um, find it difficult to get the right foods down because they just don't have the taste for it, it actually is very, very difficult. Now, the other person that I have who um, is an athlete at a national, she's a national runner in the UK, my little niece. Now, I got a distressed email from my sister in the spring. Libby's uh, performance had fallen off, you know. Auntie, please, can you help? And so, you know, came down in her particular case that she was iron deficient. And so we had to address those issues. Very common problem in the preteens and teens, especially when they're going through that growth spurt, they need a lot of nutrition and they're very active. And then of course, for girls, the menstrual cycle kicks in. Right, right. And, and you know, we talk about nutrition and very general terms and oftentimes in terms of what the adult body needs, but are the needs of a preteen or a teen different? Are they that much different that we need to be looking at different um, foods and different amounts of foods and different combinations and things like that? It depends very much on the individual, on their lack, on their level of activity. You have to look at what they're doing, uh, on where they are in that growth cycle, because each individual child will go through puberty at a different time, and so you have to be attentive to that. It's not a one size fits all. 
And I certainly do believe that the nutritional requirements in childhood and, um, you know, preteen, teen um, can be different to adults because adults are not uh, are often not as active as these kids. And so, you know, you do have to be very attentive and detailed. I, I think there is uh, detail is important and and being knowledgeable and nutrition is a huge field. Um, knowing about it, it requires, you know, a lot of reading and understanding what the nutritional content um, of foods is. And even for parents to read what's on the packets that they sometimes buy, it's not as good as it looks sometimes. For instance, with my little niece who was iron deficient, uh, I emphasized um, the need for an iron-rich diet. So I detailed all the foods that were needed. And so you know, it comes down to speed and, you know, you've got to get the kids out of the door in the morning with something in their tummy. And my sister was giving her iron fortified rice krispies. So I was rather disappointed by this after all the efforts that I'd made because on this iron fortified cereal, 2% of the daily intake, and in the case of iron, you absorb 10% of that 2%. So that's hardly an iron-rich breakfast. And that's one of the pitfalls for parents. You think you're doing the right thing, but when you read the small print, it's not quite the way it seemed. So what does an iron-rich breakfast look like? What would you have your niece eat? Because okay. I think it's, you know, it's great. It's really helpful if, if you can tell us, you know, specific foods, specific combinations, because we, you know, we think, like you said, we think we're doing the right thing. We read the label. It says iron rich on the package. And, yes. you know, yeah. So I agree. So um, I gave her a pretty comprehensive list of foods that would be helpful. Now, there's nothing wrong with giving a child or a young person leftover stew from dinner the day before if it's iron rich. So a warm breakfast, you know, with say a beef stew for breakfast in somebody who's iron deficient is not a bad option. And it's pretty quick. Now, other foods that are more commonly um, associated with, you know, as a breakfast food would be um, eggs. Um, they are iron rich. The egg yolk is high in iron. So that's a good source of iron and it's a good source of protein. So it's a good start of the day, good start to the day. Now, the one of the problems with iron is that there's a lot of things that um, compete with it in the gut for absorption. So, for instance, um, if you have um, bread, which is high in phytates with your iron, you will not absorb the iron as well. So having toast with your eggs, be careful about that, depending on whether it's a wheat toast or some other kind of bread. So if you had a rice-based um, cereal, it wouldn't interfere with the absorption of the iron. But if you have regular wheat, then it will 
interfere with the absorption of the iron. So one has to be a little bit of a little bit careful. Now the other food that's easy to um, eat for breakfast is baked beans, and that's high in iron, and it's easy to absorb, easy you know readily available. Um, nuts as snacks are very high in iron. So walnuts, almonds, and don't forget raisins, apricots. Those kind of foods are nice, easy, dry snacks that kids can eat and um, are easy to transport. Hummus, um, which is, um, again, um, you can put it in a little, um, you know, in a little container for school. High in iron, uh, easy to digest and, um, you know, tasty. And you can have it with, with rice crackers or something like that so that you get uh, some carbohydrate as well. But those kind of foods, lentils, you can even get lentil spreads as well. That, those are high in iron. Curry powder is high in iron. So if you add that to a meal, you, uh, you enrich it with iron. Um, ginger is high in iron. So there's, um, there's a whole variety of foods. Your best source of iron is, of course, red meat, which has the heme iron. And the red meats that I am talking about are um, beef, lamb, and wild meats. So bison, venison, and any meat that is called, considered game, very, very high in iron. Now, one of the things that I have encountered, I'm part of the competitive tennis coaches group, the Facebook group, and um, one of my coaching colleagues there had a high-level athlete who suddenly changed her diet to vegan. And the reason for that was um, that she uh, didn't want to eat animal products because she felt that, you know, there's a lot of cruelty involved in raising animals for food. Anyways, long story short, her performance dropped into her boots. And so it just goes to show that you have this high-level athlete performing very well, and within a very short time of radically changing her diet and avoiding a lot of these important foods, her, she could no longer perform. So, you know, it illustrates the point of the importance of diet, and it doesn't confine itself just to iron, but I hope I've given you some sense of, of what is needed in uh, providing the right f food, iron-rich foods for your child. Well, and I, I think those are all great suggestions, and you've given a wide variety of them. One thing that occurs to me as I'm listening to you, though, is especially with preteen and teenage girls, they are often so consumed by appearance and weight and um, you know, fear of, of putting on weight. And we hear of obviously eating disorders developing during the preteen and teen years more often with girls than with boys, but with boys as well sometimes. It so does. do you have some suggestions as to how parents 
can ensure that their children are getting these nutrients because a lot of the foods that you mentioned, the iron-rich foods especially, are high-calorie foods. And so there is a concern, you know, how do we make sure our kids get enough iron and enough of the other essential nutrients in a, either a caloric neutral or, you know, depending on the level of activity, I guess, a, you know, maybe some of the kids need to lose a little weight or put on a little weight. So how do we do that? Um, it's sometimes quite tricky, Lisa, that's the truth. Um, and it's very disturbing to see the number of um, young girls, and you're right, it does happen to, to boys too, who don't have a healthy relationship with food and um, develop these eating disorders. So, you know, sometimes um, as a last resort, if um, if you want a calorie neutral route, then it does sometimes come down to using um, a multivitamin with the micronutrients that you need. And there are some good products out there that um, fulfill those needs because all said and done, it's, it's very, very challenging to get everything you need out of your diet. I, I, I accept that and I, you know, I'm a parent, I'm a grandma. I, I do see it firsthand at how difficult it can be to, to achieve the desi desired nutritional intake in your kids. So, um, yes, I, I would say that, you know, if there's, if, if there's a real difficulty with with getting the food in and you, you're not sure that you're getting enough of those micronutrients, including iron, including vitamin D, which is so important for uh, bone health, then um, I, I would say do your homework and uh, find a reputable supplement to make sure that, that, that those nutrients are delivered. One of the things you mentioned, eating leftover dinner for breakfast the next day, I think yeah. is so brilliant, but at least in American food culture, and I, I can't speak intelligently to any other culture, you know, that it's not done here. And it's so funny because my mother-in-law eats non-traditional foods for breakfast and she's American um, but you know she eats things like um, a turkey sandwich for breakfast or um, hummus and you know and I, I always used to laugh at her because I, I to me it was just such a bizarre thing to do but as it turns out she's pretty smart and you know has has fed herself in a very intelligent manner and mm -hmm. I, I want to just put the challenge out to my listeners that, you know, see if you can come up with some creative ways to incorporate dinner leftovers into breakfast, especially for these kids that are going through growth spurts, because it's a great way to get additional calories and nutrients into a meal without extra work on mom or dad's part. The food's there. It's sitting in the refrigerator, <laughs> right? 
Yes, yes, absolutely. And I just want you to know, Lisa, I love your mother-in-law already. I think we would get on like a house on fire. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, she's pretty awesome. So I will say that. Um, but, but I think it is, you know, really challenging as parents to come up with creative ways to make sure our kids are getting what they need. And, you know, if our kids are training two plus hours a day. I'm Lisa Stone. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Parenting Aces. Welcome to the Parenting Aces podcast. So glad you decided to join us for this second episode of 2018. Before we jump into this week's conversation, I wanted to just put it out there that I noticed in previous years that our podcast guests were very male heavy. And so for 2018, I have resolved to include more women on the show. And I think that's important for a couple reasons. First of all, many of you have daughters who are junior and college players. And I think it's great to get the female perspective on many of the issues that our daughters face out there, including different uh, approaches to coaching, uh, nutrition issues, developmental issues, emotional issues. And so over the next several episodes, you're going to hear from some of the top women in our sport in in the coaching arena, but also in other aspects of tennis and of sport in general. And secondly, I think there are some amazing female coaches out there who maybe aren't getting the attention they deserve. And I'm hoping that by bringing some of them on the Parenting Aces podcast, maybe we can open the door to more conversations with these phenomenal women and, you know, get opportunities to see them in more public ways out there in the tennis world and in the sporting world. So I hope you enjoy these guests as they come on the show. This week we have Charlotte Alabaster who is coming at us from Canada and I guess we have a little Canadian theme going uh, since last week's guest is based in Canada as well. But Charlotte is going to speak with us about healthy eating, about nutrition needs of growing athletes, and also about eating disorders and the warning signs that we need to be on the lookout for. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the Parenting Aces podcast. Charlotte Alabaster, thank you so much for joining us on the Parenting Aces podcast. I'm thrilled to have you coming all the way from Calgary, Canada. Thank you, Lisa. It's a joy to be here today. Well, I am just so anxious to jump into the meat of our discussion, but before I do that, I wanted to give you an opportunity, since you are a first-time guest on Parenting Aces, to talk a little bit about your background and how you got involved in our great sport. Well, tennis is um, a fantastic sport, and it's been a lifelong love affair, as you can probably here from my accent, I've been, I'm originally from the UK, but I've lived for 20 years here in Canada. But my, um, I fell in love with the game as a little girl in the UK when Maria Bueno and uh, Christine Truman were at the height of the game. 
Uh, I grew up in a pretty rural area and my opportunities to to play and be coached were pretty limited, but but I made the most of every opportunity I had. And at school, we were fortunate to have tennis as part of the curriculum. We did have outside coaches who would come in um, and give us some lessons. And so we used to play every lunch hour and as much as we could as um, we did in, in our school. It was an all-girls school. And so, you know, it was it was girls' tennis that I played. And I loved it and I continue to love it and um, my journey um, has led me to the most wonderful man in my life his name is Umberto Ortega he is a tennis coach and we both adore the game of tennis and each other as it happens how lovely how lovely how lovely so, so I, I'm gonna I'm gonna apologize to my listeners right now because we've got a bit of an echo on the line and a, a bit of a crackle, but um, such as you know such as the luck when when we have international guests on the show. So um, please bear with us, everyone. Charlotte, so so you got involved in the medical field and are now in I think family practice, right? I am. Yes. And, uh, and so can you talk a little bit about what, how your work has evolved to incorporate young athletes? You know, it's very, very interesting how people find their way to my clinic. And I do have a number of elite athletes in different sports who, who are teen or preteen who are part of my you know, are under my care. And so I'm exposed to quite a lot of young people who um, who need help with nutrition, ironically enough. And the parents will sometimes be tearing their hair out because they know, and, and the coaches too, all credit to the coaches, they know too what a healthy diet is. And they come to me and it's, well, can't you just tell her or can't you just tell him, you know, what it is they should be eating? Well, yes, I can. But at the end of the day, if people, if, if kids then um, find it difficult to get the right foods down because they just don't have the taste for it, it actually is very, very difficult. Now, the other person that I have who um, is an athlete, at a national, she's a national runner in the UK, my little niece. Now, I got a distressed email from my sister in the spring. Libby's uh, performance had fallen off, you know. Auntie, please, can you help? And so, you know, came down in her particular case that she was iron deficient. And so we had to address those issues. Very common problem in the preteens and teens, especially when they're going through that growth spurt they need a lot of nutrition and they're very active and then of course for girls the menstrual cycle kicks in right right and and you know we talk about nutrition in very general terms and oftentimes in terms of what the adult body needs but are the needs of a preteen or a teen 
different? Are they that much different that we need to be looking at different um, foods and different amounts of foods and different combinations and things like that? It depends very much on the individual, on their lack, on their level of activity. You have to look at what they're doing, uh, on where they are in that growth cycle, because each individual child will go through puberty at a different time. And so you have to be attentive to that. It's not a one size fits all. And I certainly do believe that the nutritional requirements in childhood and, um, you know, preteen, teen um, can be different to adults because adults are not uh, are often not as active as these kids. And so, you know, you do have to be very attentive and detailed. I, I think there is uh, detail is important and and being knowledgeable and nutrition is a huge field. Um, knowing about it, it requires, you know, a lot of reading and understanding what the nutritional content um, of foods is. And even for parents to read what's on the packets that they sometimes buy, it's not as good as it looks sometimes. For instance, with my little niece who was iron deficient, uh, I emphasized um, the need for an iron-rich diet. So I detailed all the foods that were needed. And so, you know, it comes down to speed. And, you know, you've got to get the kids out of the door in the morning with something in their tummy. And my sister was giving her iron-fortified rice krispies. So I was rather disappointed by this after all the efforts that I'd made because on this iron-fortified cereal, 2% of the daily intake, and in the case of iron, you absorb 10% of that 2%. So that's hardly an iron-rich breakfast. And that's one of the pitfalls for parents. You think you're doing the right thing, but when you read the small print, it's not quite the way it seemed. So what does an iron-rich breakfast look like? What would you have your niece eat? Okay. I think it's, you know, it's great. It's really helpful if, if you can tell us, you know, specific foods, specific combinations, because we, you know, we think, like you said, we think we're doing the right thing. We read the label. It says iron rich on the package and, yes. you know, yeah. So I agree. So um, I gave her a pretty comprehensive list of foods that would be helpful. Now, there's nothing wrong with giving a child or a young person leftover stew from dinner the day before, if it's iron rich. So a warm breakfast, you know, with say a beef stew for breakfast in somebody who's iron deficient is not a bad option. And it's pretty quick. Now, other foods that are more commonly um, associated with, you know, as a breakfast food would be um, eggs. Um, they are iron rich. The egg yolk is high in iron. So that's a good source of iron. And it's a good source of protein. So it's a good start of the day, good start to the day. Now, the one of the problems with iron is that there's a lot of things that um, compete with it in the gut for absorption. So for instance, 
um, if you have um, bread, which is high in phytates with your iron, you will not absorb the iron as well. So having toast with your eggs, be careful about that, depending on whether it's a wheat toast or some other kind of bread. So if you had a rice-based um, cereal, it wouldn't interfere with the absorption of the iron. But if you have regular wheat, then it will interfere with the absorption of the iron. So one has to be a little bit of a little bit careful. Now the other food that's easy to um, eat for breakfast is baked beans and that's high in iron and it's easy to absorb, easy, you know, readily available. Um, nuts as snacks are very high in iron. So walnuts, almonds, and don't forget raisins, apricots, those kind of foods are nice, easy, dry snacks that kids can eat and um, are easy to transport. Hummus, um, which is, um, again, um, you can put it in a little, um, you know, in a little container for school. High in iron, uh, easy to digest and um you know, tasty, and you can have it with with rice crackers or something like that, so that you get uh, some carbohydrate as well. But those kind of foods, lentils, you can even get lentil spreads as well. That those are high in iron. Curry powder is high in iron. So if you add that to a meal, you uh, you enrich it with iron. Um, ginger is high in iron. So there's, um, there's a whole variety of foods. Your best source of iron is, of course, red meat, which has the heme iron. And the red meats that I am talking about are um, beef, lamb, and wild meats. So bison, venison, and any meat that is called, considered game. Very, very high in iron. Now, one of the things that I have encountered, I'm part of the competitive tennis coaches group, the Facebook group, and um, one of my coaching colleagues there had a high-level athlete who suddenly changed her diet to vegan. And the reason for that was um, that she uh, didn't want to eat animal products because she felt that, you know, there's a lot of cruelty involved in raising animals for food. Anyways, long story short, her performance dropped into her boots. And so it just goes to show that you have this high level athlete performing very well. And within a very short time of radically changing her diet and avoiding a lot of these important foods, her, she could no longer perform. So, you know, it illustrates the point of the importance of diet. And it doesn't confine itself just to iron, but I hope I've given you some sense of, of what is needed in uh, providing the right food, iron-rich foods for your child. Well, and I, I think those are all great suggestions and you've given a wide variety of them. One thing that occurs to me as I'm listening to you, though, is if 
especially with preteen and teenage girls, they are often so consumed by appearance and weight and, um, you know, fear of, of putting on weight. And we hear of obviously eating disorders developing during the preteen and teen years more often with girls than with boys, but with boys as well sometimes. So do you have some suggestions as to how parents can ensure that their children are getting these nutrients? Because a lot of the foods that you mentioned, the iron-rich foods especially, are high-calorie foods. And so there is a concern, you know, how do we make sure our kids get enough iron and enough of the other essential nutrients in a, either a caloric neutral or, you know, depending on the level of activity, I guess, a, you know, maybe some of the kids need to lose a little weight or put on a little weight. So how do we do that? Um, it's sometimes quite tricky, Lisa. That's the truth. Um and it's very disturbing to see the number of um, young girls, and you're right, it does happen to, to boys too, who don't have a healthy relationship with food and um, develop these eating disorders. So, you know, sometimes um, as a last resort, if, um, if you want a calorie-neutral route, then it does sometimes come down to using um, a multivitamin with the micronutrients that you need. And there are some good products out there that um, fulfill those needs because all said and done, it's, it's very, very challenging to get everything you need out of your diet. I... I I accept that and I you know I'm a parent I'm a grandma I I do see it firsthand at how difficult it can be to to achieve the desi- desired nutritional intake in your kids so um yes I I would say that you know if there's if if there's a real difficulty with with getting the food in and you, you're not sure that you're getting enough of those micronutrients, including iron, including vitamin D, which is so important for uh, bone health, then um, I, I would say do your homework and uh, find a reputable supplement to make sure that, that, that those nutrients are delivered. One of the things you mentioned, eating leftover dinner for breakfast the next day, I think is so brilliant. But at least in American food culture, and I I can't speak intelligently to any other culture, you know, that it's not done here. And it's so funny because my mother-in-law eats non-traditional foods for breakfast and she's American um, but you know she eats things like um, a turkey sandwich for breakfast or um, hummus and you know and I, I always used to laugh at her because I, I to me it was just such a bizarre thing to do but as it turns out she's pretty smart and 
you know, has, has fed herself in a very intelligent manner. And mm-hmm. I, I want to just put the challenge out to my listeners that, you know, see if you can come up with some creative ways to incorporate dinner leftovers into breakfast, especially for these kids that are going through growth spurts, because it's a great way to get additional calories and nutrients into a meal without extra work on mom or dad's part. The food's there. It's sitting in the refrigerator, (laughs) right? Yes. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I just want you to know, Lisa, I love your mother-in-law already. I think we would get on like a house on fire. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, she's pretty awesome. So I will say that. Um, but, but I think it is, you know, really challenging as parents to come up with creative ways to make sure our kids are getting what they need. And, you know, if our kids are training two plus hours a day at their sport, you know, and maybe an additional half hour to hour uh, in the gym doing work that way. I mean, these kids require a lot of calories. Is there a way, Charlotte, to determine the best calorie balance for our kids? Like, how do we know? Do our kids need 1,500 calories? Do they need 2,500 calories? What's the best way to determine that? Well, you know, Counting calories is a pretty tedious way to have to to manage this. So I would keep it fairly simple. And basically, if they get a snack, then they have frequent meals, small meals throughout the day. And, you know, if kids are hungry, they should have something you know, in their in their school bag or in their um, tennis bag to to snack on something healthy. Because what often happens, they come straight out of school, go for coaching, and they haven't eaten. That's a very long time for them to be without food. So yes, one can do a calorie count if you like, but it has to be done very much on an individual basis. And, you know, dietitians, and I'm not a dietitian, are pretty good at doing the calculations for that. I wouldn't say I'm the best, but I would say, you know, feed your kids when they're hungry. And please, the most important meal of the day is breakfast. If they can't eat breakfast, make sure they have something healthy in the car to eat on the way to school or on the school bus. But somehow or other, be creative in solving the nutritional issues for your individual child. They're all different. But I would say frequent small meals throughout the day is very helpful. And don't forget that Kids today often suffer from headaches and migraines. And the reason is they are not eating often enough. One of the cornerstones of migraine prevention is eating regularly. The second is getting adequate sleep. The third is trying to minimize stress. Not so easy to do, but 
bear that in mind. Migraines are very common. Sorry, I'm diverting a little bit here from the original question, but I think these are useful tips for parents to hear. Yes, for sure. And and I wanted to ask you, what are your thoughts on uh, liquid breakfast, you know, protein shakes or smoothies or something to that effect? It's a very uh, popular way of uh, getting uh, a breakfast. I'm not a big fan of smoothies. I would encourage parents to uh, provide their kids with something warm to drink in the morning because it's good to get the uh, the chi. I refer to that in the more Chinese um, medical um, approach when I say chi, moving. But having a warm drink is important. I would avoid tea or coffee, although in America, you know, that's pretty much um, a ritual. Uh, but herbal teas are better. I don't really think that um, smoothies and protein shakes are the best, but they they can be useful. I wouldn't use them all the time. That's That's my take on it. The reason being, and I learned this from my uh, teacher, Dr. Stephen Ong, you need to chew. Mastication is, is a very important part of the digestive process. You exercise that jaw muscle, which um, moves the, the meridians, which some people may be familiar with, some people will, will not, but that's uh, part of Chinese medicine, and they're located in the jaw. And as you chew, you also add saliva, which adds to the digestive process. So, yes, you can woof down a smoothie if you like. Um, it's better than nothing, but it's not the best that, that I can recommend. Interesting. Well, I'm a big smoothie person, so I'm, <laughs> I'm listening with... Um... <laughs> With a very open mind here because, uh, hmm, yeah, I may have to change my morning routine up a bit. So, well, at least it's, it's just a thought and it's, you know, something that I've learned from somebody who's very, very knowledgeable and experienced. And it's certainly made me reconsider my breakfast routine. Yeah, I I think it's it's definitely worth considering, and and I'm gonna have to uh, put some thought into that because the smoothie thing I have to admit is very simple. Um, I'm a creature of habit, as I know you know most of us are, and you know it's kind of a mindless thing in the morning to throw everything in my NutriBullet and <laughs> blend it all together and drink it down while I'm catching up on email or uh, you know posting yes. on social media. So, um, but I, I will put some thought into that one. I wanted to shift gears a little bit, Charlotte. And one of the things that you had mentioned to me when we were corresponding before we decided to do this podcast was the vitamin D deficiency that you're seeing in young athletes now. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about that, about why vitamin D is so important why we're seeing a rise in vitamin D deficiency and what we can do to address that. Yes, absolutely. It's a, it's a tremendously important um, area. Uh, there is a rise in uh, vitamin D deficiency. Um, vitamin 
D is or D3 um, is actually manufactured in the body through a process in the kidneys. Um, but the whole process starts with exposure to sunlight. And so you produce the vitamin D2 in the skin, and then the D2 is um, altered by the kidneys to become the highly active. Uh, and we shouldn't forget, Lisa, that uh, vitamin D3 is actually a hormone. And so it's much more, to me, when I hear that, it's a much more powerful thing than just a vitamin, although vitamins are vital too. But when you hear the word, this is a hormone, to me, that really amplifies the, the importance of vitamin D3 in the diet. The other thing about vitamin D3 absorption, uh, if it's in the, the diet, the absorption from the gut requires <clears throat> vitamin K2. And vitamin K2 is found in uh, the milk of grass-fed cows. Again, you know, this comes down to uh, reading the small print on the, 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 the packaging. And it's fairly difficult to, to get a hold of, but there is milk that's produced from grass-fed cows. Um, eggs from grass-fed chickens have the K2. And in people who have a healthy um, gut flora, the K2 is present in the gut and is actually produced by the bacteria in the gut. But if you take antibiotics, that will deplete your gut flora and as a consequence will decrease your um, capacity to produce vitamin K2. And you can see how the whole thing goes right so we need all these things to function in harmony and do the job that they they need so most of us don't get enough sunshine and um although we're not really um targeting this age group there will be parents listening so for your benefit if you're over 50 your kidneys are not going to be as robust as a younger person and the capacity to convert the D2 to the D3 um, declines. And so for over 50s, you've got to take that vitamin uh, D3 supplement because it's very unlikely that you're um, going to get enough of the, uh, the vitamin D2 uh, converted from the skin in your kidneys to the active ingredient. But for those little children who are, you know, growing, even though they're out of doors, you know, a fair amount of the time, I wouldn't depend on that being adequate for um, for the um, for the nutritional needs. And if your athlete is getting leg cramps, especially at night that's a very good indicator that they, they are vitamin D deficient. And you, you give them the vitamin D3, and I would recommend um, approximately, if you're over 50 kilograms, if your child is over 50 kilograms, and some teens, you know, they're, they're pretty good size. If you're over 50 kilograms, I would give 2,000 international units of the D3. 
If you're a smaller kid, then I would go with 1,600 international units daily. But that would be my rule of thumb. But if there are nighttime leg cramps, then I would um, be suspicious of vitamin uh, D3 deficiency. And I would definitely consult your pediatrician or your family doctor at that time, just to make sure that there's no other reason for the leg cramps. One can't always assume that it's one thing. There are other reasons why that might be happening. So, um, you know, if a D3 doesn't relieve the symptoms, then pursue it. Okay. And one of the things I've heard about vitamin D absorption from the sun is that the use of sunscreen, which of course everybody recommends, interferes with that. Is that the case? Yes, it does interfere with the uh, uh, the benefits of the raised sun on the skin. So yes, we are actually uh, diminishing our opportunity to produce that D2 in the skin. But on the other hand, there are concerns, you know, about developing um, sun damage, uh, and the, in the most extreme form, the um, genesis of melanoma in the skin, which of course is a very serious condition. And if you're fair-skinned and blue-eyed, one is more at risk of of developing melanoma. So, and there's been a explosion in the number of cases of melanoma. So, you know, it's a it's a tough. Um, it's it's a it's you have to make a decision <laughs> on whether to protect your skin or run the risk of melanoma. I I think the general party line is that one should use the sunblock. So then that that really means that we are left with no other option but to supplement. Right, right. Now the D three is there an absorption issue with that like there is with the iron? Are there foods that we need to be wary of combining with a supplement? I'm not aware that um, D3 uh, is the same as iron. Iron is very particular with its particular problems, but uh, D3 is pretty pretty easy to to absorb, and I don't know of any real hindrances to that. And yeah, I, I'm, I'm not aware of anything. One of the you, things that comes up with, with supplements oftentimes is, you know, is more better. Is there a way to have too much or take too much when you're using supplements? How do we avoid that? I mean, I, to me, that was always kind of a scary part of using supplements is how do I control what's coming in through my food, what's coming in through the environment, what's coming in through a supplement so that I don't overload my kidneys or my digestive system or some other organ in the body. Right. I mean, you're absolutely right, Lisa. It, it definitely is something that has to be considered. Um, in the case of um, Fat-soluble vitamins, um, you could, in theory, um, in extreme cases, but you would really have to take massive amounts of these vitamins to produce an overload. Um, And I really mean 
incredible amounts. So it's highly unlikely uh, to do that if you took um, a reputable uh, supplement and took it in the prescribed way. And, you know, from the diet, again, you'd have to eat enormous amounts to to become um, vitamin overloaded. Okay, interesting, interesting. Well, let's get back to the whole issue of food and food choices and uh, relationships with food, because I think that's a concern for a lot of parents, especially parents of girls. And I am hoping maybe you can give us some specifics, maybe through cases that you've seen yourself as a physician on what some warning signs might be that our child is at risk or possibly even has crossed over the line into the eating disorder category and how we as parents can address that and help our children. Well, one of the warning signs um, that there could be trouble brewing is when, um, and it does happen more commonly with girls, they start to be restrictive on what they will or won't eat. And when that happens, that's a huge red flag. Um, and I would encourage patient, uh, parents, I beg your pardon, to, to seek help as soon as, as that starts happening. If they're being very restrictive with their diet, won't eat the normal meals that are being shared by the family, there are problems. And the weight of the child will be dropping off. I guarantee it. Um, yeah, th- that would be my um, my advice on that. Um, in our particular city, we have very, very good uh, support for parents. We have an eating disorder program. Quite recently, I had a dancer who was, and it's This is a very, very common disorder. Eating disorders are very common amongst dancers. And she went to the program and she did very well and is now eating properly, eating well, and is at a healthy weight. So if a coach comes to your child or comes to you as a parent and says, you know, your kid's overweight, um, you know, or, or worse, tells the child directly, you know, you're, you need to lose weight if you want to perform at the highest level. And, you know, we know kids can sometimes take things to an extreme and they may hear that as not, I need to lose five or six pounds, but I'm fat and I need to lose 20 pounds. Um, and then they take drastic measures. I mean, that's that's a common thing that happens in sports, especially, again, with female athletes. And I want to just put out there to my audience that parents, we need to be vigilant about these types of messages that our daughters might be hearing and and our sons, too. But again, it's more common with girls. And, you know, we need to have Open communication, again, that word communication, that tends to to crop up pretty regularly on parenting aces, but we need to have open communication with our children's coaches 
to make sure that the messages they're sending regarding our child's eating and weight and appearance are the quote right messages, right? Absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, coaches should be very, very much aware of the words that the, the power that their words have on kids. And it can be quite devastating. And yes, communication um, has to be thoughtful and they need to be uh, very sure <coughs> about what they're saying. And if they are going to address an issue about weight, I don't think that they should be delivering that kind of a message to the children. I think that is something that they should speak to the parents privately about and, you know, be very, very sensitive um, as to um, how they talk about it and, and, and aware of the impact that it can have on children. So, yes, you, the communication piece is, is so important. Um, and you don't want a kid who's really perhaps of a normal weight and, and has normal body fat to be told that they're fat because I know that that happens and it's a crime. I'm sorry, that's the only way that I can put it. It is a crime to communicate that to a girl. And, you know, they lose the weight, they lose their periods. That's very serious. Right. And I think, too, maybe that's another warning sign for parents is if your daughter is of the age that she has started menstruating and all of a sudden her cycle comes to a halt and she's not getting periods, that that's a sign that something serious could be going on and to seek help, right? Very much, very much. Missing periods can never be considered normal. Right, right. And um, yeah, we need to, again, parents, we need to be so vigilant about this stuff. Charlotte, I, we're coming to the end of our hour, and, and I wanted to just ask you if you have any resources that you feel good recommending to the Parenting Aces audience, either reading material or websites or anything else that you recommend for us. Uh the go-to resource that I use is a site called Authority Nutrition. And I find that a pretty good site um, to, uh, to utilize. Okay, fantastic. And I will, um, listeners, I will include a link to that in the show notes. So be sure and check that out. And in terms of adding supplements to our child's diet, um, making these dietary changes, is this something that we should be consulting with our child's physician on, or is it something that's okay to do without that medical kind of uh, thumbs up? I think it's always good to consult your uh, pediatrician or family physician who am Ever it is that's involved in your child's care, because um, sometimes having the numbers and doing the blood test, which is not popular for kids, of course, but sometimes having that information 
can be uh, very uh, very useful. It's it it affirms you know whether there's an improvement in the in the iron levels or whether the iron levels, for example, are dropping off. That way, you you have some evidence to look at. And you can then say, well, you know, your iron, your ferritin is now over 50. Your performance has improved. Let's, you know, let's keep with this, this program of, of eating because it's working. Right, right. Well, Charlotte, you've given us some great advice and some great information today. And I want to thank you again for coming on the podcast and, and sharing your expertise with us. Well, thank you, Lisa. It's been a pleasure. And I do hope that this uh, information uh, helps parents because being a parent is the most difficult job in the world, especially when it comes to kids who are in sports. I agree. And thank you again for joining us. And to my listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. We'll catch you next time on Parenting Aces. I'm Lisa Stone, and you've been listening to the Parenting Aces podcast. For tennis parents, by a tennis parent. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to us and write a review on iTunes. For more information on navigating the junior and college tennis journey, please visit us online at parentingaces.com. Thanks for tuning in and sharing us with your tennis community.